Hello and welcome to the Race Motor GP podcast. As you can hear, I'm not Toby Moody again. He has now, well, by the time you hear this, he might be back from the Dakar, but as we record it, he is still in the Saudi Arabian desert cheering for Danilo Petrucci's achievement. And uh, did Carlos Checa make it to the finish as well? This is a good question. I have no idea. The last time I checked on Checa, great, great phrasing. Last time I checked on Checa, he was upside down. I don't know if he ever got... <laughs> Basically, every photograph I've seen of him seems to have been upside down, so I'm, I'm not entirely sure. He, he was known as Careless Chucka in the MotoGP paddock for a reason. <laughs> we'll, uh, we're, we're quite keen to, to talk more about Petrucci's Dakar adventures on this podcast at some point before the MotoGP season kicks off, so we will come back to that. But for now, today we're talking about 2022 season and primarily Mark Marquez. Because um, the 2022 season is kind of underway. Um, the MotoGP teams are beginning to hold their launches. And it's all begun with Honda's global motorsport launch, at which the centre of attention was a surprise appearance from Mark Marquez, who wasn't originally scheduled to be uh, be part of the event. So joining me, stand-in host Matt Beer, to discuss that are Simon Patterson and Val Horinci. Simon, at the end of the last podcast, you sent us all a picture of a uh, rippling Alicia Spargo in some yellow pants. So I'm really looking forward to what visual aids you've got for this one today. I didn't know that was going to be a trend. Well, <laughs> something out. <laughs> I thought that's what happened in this podcast every, every time. Just, just dive into your folder. <laughs> Maybe not. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> And Val, how is Moscow? Uh, Moscowy. Excellent. No, not really. It's cold and freezing. So, <laughs> That's a good thing, right? So uh, Honda uh, launched its 2022 global motorsport programs on Friday morning. Now, the original plan was that Mark Marquez would not be on the media list for that event while he was continuing to recover from his latest injury. But uh, as it turned out, he was made available and he was extremely revealing about his current situation and the event's over the last few months. So to kick us off, Simon, bring us up to speed on everything Marquez has been saying. Well, yeah, uh, like you say, Matt, we, we didn't expect him to make an appearance whenever the guest list for the, the Zoom call to, to sort of discuss Honda's plans for the year was announced. It was originally just Paul Espargaro, Takanakagami and Alex Marquez. Then there was a flurry of messages from HRC last night to say, uh, Mark's been back on a motorbike. Uh, Mark's eyesight has started working again. Oh, and we're going to send Mark to the Zoom call as well, which um, rather unfortunately for the other three then inevitably turned into 45 minutes of questions for Mark Marquez and one or two for Paul um, and the others sort of sitting on their phones for uh, an hour-long Zoom call looking quite bored. Um, Mark was super revealing, actually. He uh, He opened up quite a bit about what he's been through in the last three months, really. Um, taking us right back to the, the accident that, that caused the problems he's been having. He said that he was out training on his enduro bike. He did that thing. Like, how many times have we all done it? He said, oh, I'll just go out for two more laps at the end of the day. Uh, you know, it's like tempting fate, isn't it? He went out, he high-sided, he landed on his head. He said he was okay. He went home, he got in the shower, he came out of the shower... And he started having double vision problems. Uh, from there, he spent a week waiting for them to clear under the advice of his doctor. The doctor said, oh, you know, maybe it's a concussion. Maybe it's not a, a recurrence of the old 2011 injury where you, where you I think he, he tweaked a nerve. And then the nerve controls the muscles that focus your eye. So basically, he had double vision as a result of that. So he, he kind of 
waited it out and, and it didn't get any better. They told him, we have two options here. We can perform surgery or we can let it wait and see how long it takes to, to heal itself naturally. Um, the natural option, he admitted, could have taken a month. It could have taken three months. It could have taken six months. It might never have fixed itself naturally. So while people were a little bit concerned about the lack of information coming from Honda, which is really something we've we've kind of come to expect from Honda, uh, I think that the, the strategy all along was get to around this time to see how it was progressing. And then they always knew that if they needed to do the surgery, they could wait until a month before the first race and do the surgery then. So they, they always had some time. But Mark said he, he came into this week feeling really good. He went and had his checkup. The the doctor said, Yeah, like we I think you're you're fixed. Go ride a motorbike and come back and see me. So he did that. He jumped on a motocross bike because motocross is the hardest, toughest, most violent form of training he could think of, which is very Mark Marquez. Uh and, and that all went well. So the next step now is to get out and ride either a superbike or an RCV, Honda's road-going MotoGP bike, to get out and ride one of those at a Grand Prix circuit for a full day. Uh, the doctor wants to see what tiredness does to the injury. He wants him to ride all day, do 60 laps, come in at the end of the day exhausted, and hopefully still only see one of everything and not two of everything in front of him. If that goes according to plan, then we're going to see him back in action at the, the first of the preseason tests in Malaysia in just under a month's time, which is exceptionally good news for Honda and probably quite bad news for everyone else because, you know, let's be honest, this is, the, I think, the first time that Mark Marquez will have done preseason testing since about 2017 uh, because of various surgeries and injuries and problems. So it's a good sign and um, it, it bodes well for a full recovery for him. Well, this, this is a, a very good point, actually. We, we got used for years for Mark Marquez having a pre-season injury worry. There was the year he broke his leg really close to the start of the season. His, his shoulder's been popping in and out for about eight years. And we'd always talk about it a lot pre-season. Then he'd get to Qatar, finish second to a Ducati, then win the next few races. And it'd be like, okay, it's made no difference again. And then obviously the 2020 injury proved to be much more serious and it, it no longer felt like, it wasn't ever really crying wolf, but it was an element of every Marquez injury worry wasn't a real scare. Whereas the tone through last year and this winter has been been so different, hasn't it? I, from from what Marquez was saying on Friday, uh, I don't think we were we were wrong to worry this might be the end of his career given, you know, I think, did he, did he say it was probably the, the toughest time mentally he's had in his career so far? Yeah, that, he, he alluded to that because, I guess because at the end of the day, it's the second time in 18 months that he's had a potentially career-ending injury. And that has to be a hard, a hard thing to deal with when you're at the peak of your game. And the worry as well with this being a repeat of something that had happened before. I mean, thinking back, when, when the news that he had an eye problem again first came out, I thought back to the end of 2011. And at the time, it wasn't exactly underreported, but he wasn't in MotoGP yet. So he was under the radar for, for a few people. And... It was the same time as the death of Marco Simoncelli as well. So that was the main news story at the time. So I think quite a lot of people didn't remember how serious it was in 2011. But certainly back then, I can remember thinking, gosh, this kid who's been incredible in 125s and Moto2 might not even make it to MotoGP if this is as serious as, serious as it sounds. He, he did have the surgery that time, didn't he, in 2011? Yeah, he did. Uh, but I think from, from sort of some background reading and stuff I've done, because it's surgery on a nerve it's not something you want to be doing over and over again. Hence why they took a little bit more conservative approach this time, why they kind of you know waited while they had the chance to wait. 
but yeah, it was super serious last time. It, it arguably it cost him a Moto Two championship because he probably should have won Moto Two the first time of asking back then, given how strong he'd been that season in his rookie year right up until the end, and and he missed some races, and it, you know it it was a tough injury. But in saying that, it, it I think it wasn't a tough injury that he learned many lessons from because it didn't really bring any calm to how he dealt with further injuries. We saw him, you know, break his leg, get straight back in the bike, have the shoulder problems, have surgery, get straight back in the bike. It took the arm break and getting straight back on the bike again and then everything going so wrong to kind of put a little bit of caution into his approach to just, no, not even caution. I think what we've seen this time is it just, he has the time he has this resource of time to use to recover, so he's used it well, which is um, you know, maybe a bit of a different strategy from the past, but I think it's one that's paid off for him. Um, and, and yeah, there was lots of kind of alluding back to, uh, to the previous arm break injury on Friday morning when he was talking about you know the situation he was finding himself in again and, and how they'd done things differently. And so... Uh, I think that if there's one positive that has come out of losing a season and a half of his career, it's that he's made himself, you know, a little bit more circumspect. I won't say cautious because then someone asked him about, you know, does this mean you're going to stop training on off-road bikes? And he said, well, you can sit on the sofa. You can not do any training on motorbikes. You can make sure you're fully fit for every race and you will never be the best in the world. So um, I'm fairly sure he's going to, you know, he's not going to scamper his enthusiasm elsewhere. Well, and the other element you allude to to there as well is that he had the time this time because the injury happened in October in a season he wasn't fighting for the championship. So, you know, Val, what's your feeling? Has, is this something where Marquez actually has learned a lesson or, or is it just actually he had the luxury of time so he could take this approach? But if it was like one race into a season where he was fighting for the title, would it be the same jump back on the bike as soon as possible? I don't know where I would put mark on the on the spectrum of how cautious MotoGP riders are about injuries because i think that spectrum is not a line i think it's a dot none of them wait to return <laughs> all of them return as soon as is humanly possible which i'm not a huge fan of but that's that just seems to be the mantra it's it's hard for me to think of an example where a MotoGP rider who had a lot on the line decided to wait out some extra time to to be careful. I mean, we can think back to obviously Morbidelli missing a big chunk of last year's season to fix his knee, but that was a that was a lost season. Didn't the nineteen Yamaha wasn't carrying him to anything special that year? So I don't. We'll see. I think we'll see with with the with the injuries that you can ride around. Because he can't ride around double vision. Like you, there's, there's. If it didn't fix himself, there's nothing, nothing he could have done. He would have been, I presume, he would have been puking every lap because I, I just can't see how he can ride with something like that. And that's, that's pretty much what Mark suggested too. Is it's either you have clear vision or you don't. And if you don't, you don't ride a bike because he can't. So yeah, uh, but I, that said, he does reference the Harris situation a lot. So I think he's at the very least more attuned to the opinion of medical professionals i guess although at the same time the harris thing was also there was also medical advice that allowed him to return as far as i understand so i don't know it's a lesson it's not a lesson he deserved to learn in this fashion because it's really really just a, a grim time it sounds like he spent a very unpleasant couple of first months being 
not really able, as he put it, to live a normal life, which means that if he made any sudden movements, he was feeling dizzy, as far as I understood, which sounds about right for double vision. And if you can't do that, I presume you can't train. So there's also the the second consideration there for me is that he still wasn't back to 100% by the end of last season. And now there's been this huge interruption to his rhythm. And okay, if, if his eye is fixed, and I hope it's fixed, then we go back to thinking about the shoulder, which still wasn't full on at the end of last season, and which he will not have had the chance to work on extensively so far. Without looking to disparage anyone, um, I wonder if maybe the reason that the medical advice in this situation is a little different is because he's gone to someone who isn't a GP medic. I think that we have a medical team who's probably well i'm not going to say their primary concern but their their very close secondary concern is getting the guys back on track and uh sometimes that isn't in the writer's best interests so i think maybe going to an ophthalmologist someone who doesn't live in the motor gp bubble who doesn't see things the same way that people in the paddock sees things might have just added an extra layer of caution to everything that that you know in the end has helped mark more than going to an orthopedic surgeon or a physiotherapist or something like that would have helped him. Um, like you say, Val, the, the, the shoulder issue, the one thing we didn't really get a chance to explore on Friday morning with Mark was where the shoulder injury and the arm injury is, how much training he has been able to do, things like that. Um, obviously, we, we know that he hasn't been riding motorbikes and we know that that has always been an absolutely crucial part of Mark's training, uh, both in terms of of you know hand eye coordination and keeping the mind sharp, but also in terms of fitness and being bike fit. If it's a case that he's still been able to go to the gym and, and work out in the gym, then he, I'd imagine, has progressed along quite nicely in the last three months because it will have given him a chance to, especially to build up the muscle again in that arm. Because when you look at pictures, uh, whenever you see him, you know, training photographs that he's not got a t-shirt on or he's got a vest on or something like that, you can see the very obvious visible difference in muscle mass from one side of his body to the other because he hasn't been uh, able to use the, the right arm to train the right shoulder in particular. So maybe it's a case that he's been able to work on that even though he hasn't been able to, to do, you know, fast moving things. I think I could probably lift weights with double vision, um, but maybe, you know, maybe... Maybe not, but um, hopefully. Um, probably shouldn't. Well, yeah, there is Unless that. they're firmly attached to there something. I do my best just not to have double vision, to be honest. Um, but uh, I wonder if he could do it with his eyes closed. Oh, like yeah. Like have a supervisor yeah, and then do it. Yeah, that's true. But that's, that's probably, they probably advise against that. Yeah, but, but. but you know, we did talk about levels of caution here. Um, I'm sure if there's a way to do something, he's found a way to do it. But the first question to Mark and Sepang should be, did you lift weights with your with eyes closed? With your eyes closed, there you go. We've, we've already <laughs> I, started I to, to do <laughs> But But even, even just the chance to sit at home for two or three months has probably done him good physically. It's probably just given things a chance to heal up in a way that they, they would never have done. Well, I don't know, Simon, just you know, remember... Remember when Honda suggested opening a window or something had had severely damaged that previous injury? What if he was opening quite a few windows? That's that's a very hazardous. Hopefully it was cold. You know he didn't need to. I really hope that to this day, whenever he has to leave the house, uh, he he just screams on Alex to come and open the front door for him every time. <laughs> I'd have it written into Alex's Honda contract at this point. So on on a more serious note, around his pre double vision 
both fitness and competitiveness at the end of end of last season. I mean, this, this time last year, we we were making some quite varied predictions on what sort of Marquez would get in 2021. I remember uh, the stuff I was committing to in, in print was very much, he'll be back as full Marquez. I, I think he'll be champion this year. Some of, some of the rest of our team were more cautious about what the severity of that injury and the layoff would have done to him. Now, by the time we got to his last few races before this latest injury, where Val, where, where was he, basically? So firstly, this is one I have to concede to Simon, since we always disagree all the time. And on, on Marcus's injury, he was completely right. I thought he did back immediately in 2019 spec, and that was as far from it. He was not in championship contention like I expected him to be. So, well done, Simon. Uh, Thank you, Val. But in terms of where he was at the end of the year, now I'm actually going to be a little bit more cautious, having learned my lesson, not unlike Mark. Having learned my lesson that, you know, it's it's not as easy as I expected it to be. At the end of last year, Mark did win two races in a row, but one of those wins was Kota, which is a very special case. He also won at the Saxon Ring, which is also a very special case. So it's hard to read into those too much. And the other one was Misano, which is, I guess, not a special track for Mark, but that Misano win would not have happened if Pecco didn't didn't chuck it down the road in the end. That was Bagnaia's race to lose, and Bagnaia lost it, and Bagnaia won a whole bunch more. So was Marquez better at the end of 2021 than he was at the start? Obviously, yes. Was he back to the Marquez that we've maybe come to expect in 18, 19, whatever? Still not entirely sure. And, I mean, we'll, we'll probably never know because I think his condition will have still changed over the winter but assuming he if we were to assume that he restarts from where he ended uh that season then i think he's in he's in the championship picture but he's not running away with it i I, in a very rare moment i'm going to completely agree with everything val has just said um i think we've we've never seen mark marquez we've not seen 2019 spec mark marquez against 2021 spec Fabio Cordero and Paco Bagnaia. Because when Mark found his form at the end of last season, he came in to the middle of a championship fight as, as something of a you know a complete dark horse, a wild card. He had nothing to win apart from races. He was a spoiler, exactly. And, and I think that because of that, neither of those guys were willing to go head to head with him because they never needed to. Uh, let's you know look at the the win at Aragon, um, Peko's win at Aragon, even though that was an amazing win for Peko, Peko never really attacked. He was happy in a way to take second. He he closed the door every time Mark made an attack, but it was kind of Mark's mistakes that gave Peko all the opportunities he needed to win that um, over those those epic few last three laps, and I, I think that is kind of indicative of the Mark Marquez that we saw in the second half of the year. He's not been the he didn't come in as the dogfighter that the that we expect of him, maybe because the others didn't give him the dogfight he wanted, but it's still not enough to to judge actual levels of performance off. If it turns out that 2019 Mark can find his way back, and it turns out that 2021 spec Quadraro and lit twenty or lit twenty-one spec Bagnaya can maintain that form, we are going to have one hell of a season. Yeah. As you mentioned, with, with Aragon, Aragon is also a pretty special Mark Marquez track and a, a pretty special Honda that track. Too. So the real 
proof would have been if he went to a a circuit that's traditionally difficult for him and difficult for Mark who's still second place. So, you know, obviously yeah, yeah. most MotoGP tracks are in some way, shape or form Mark Marquez tracks. But we st- we didn't we didn't quite get the the full picture. And maybe we would have had a better idea if not not for this injury obviously with the with the final two races, but but we didn't. Uh but then again, it still might be a really, really good season with with Mark participating in the in the title fight because Mark Marquez does not have to be the 2019 version of Mark Marquez to fight for a title. Like seventy percent of that will do. So if he's at seventy percent of that, he'll be in the mix. I think. I think we we wrote a feature after the win in Mizano. Um, him and I had a bit of a a back and forth conversation in the press conference talking about the importance of the next few races. And he referenced how the the last two races of the year were almost more important for him because they would give him a better measure of, of true form. And I think, yeah, had he went to Portimao with the championship one at Misano with Corrado Aro on a bit of a free reign with Bagnaya, absolutely on a free reign, we would have seen something that would have given us more chance to measure up the year. But that, that obviously was denied to us by the, the, the head injury and the, the vision problems that followed. So we, we almost lost our measuring stick. You talk about the Battle of Aragon and how he how Marquez might race Quattararo and Banyaya now. Does he still have the same aura for the other riders as he would have done this time this time two years ago? I'm thinking back to the battles that Fabio had with him at the end of twenty nineteen, which Fabio always lost. Um, who wants to go first? You've both simultaneously raised hands, so I, I think it's gone. I think the the mythical Mark Marquez image is gone, um, because the others have been given a chance to learn what it's like to win. They've upped the game as the youngsters inevitably do. Mark is now the old man, which is insane to think about. Um, but you know he's like six years older than these guys. Um, they have brought something new and they, they know how to ride these bikes because the bikes have changed quite a bit in Mark's time away, uh, with wings, with ride height devices, with front and rear ride height devices that automatically adjust exiting the corner with the way that the electronics have been revised, that the actual physical machinery might not have changed too much, but the way that, that you sit on a MotoGP bike is constantly evolving at the minute. And these guys are the guys that are starting from a base point much closer to what they have. You know, whenever you look back at the, the RC213 from 2013, when Mark first sat on it, it, it's a completely different beast from what it is now. Bridged on tires, uh, open Honda software, not the control ECU, um, no wings, no ride height devices, no launch control devices. They're, they're different animals. Um, and I think that just tips the balance a little bit towards the kids. Um, plus the fact that the kids are sharper, the kids have been racing more, the kids know each other more. Um, it feels really strange calling them kids because you know, they're all world champions at this point. But you get my point. Um, I, I, just, I think that they've realised what it's like without Mark and, and Mark is going to be the one that struggles to find his place a little bit when he comes back. Just trying to think if there was much of an aura for Mark when it came to like duels on the track. Obviously, there was an aura for Mark when it came to pace, and it must have been really obnoxious to show up to 
Cota or Saxon Ring or Aragon and look at it and go, well, this weekend's over. I don't know why we're here. We're, we're all fighting for 20 points because the 25 is going to that guy. And we'll see whether that returns. That depends on the first visit back to Cota or Saxon Ring or Aragon or whatever. In terms of last laps, he's lost as many as he won. He did beat the inexperienced Quartararo twice in, in 19. I think it was twice. Uh... But he also, you know, he had the defeats to Doicio, so he had the defeat to Petrucci at Mugello, had the defeat versus Rins at Silverstone. It's I, I don't think it's something that he's really dwelled on much. I think the, the intimidation factor is you can beat me today, you can beat me in this final lap, and it, it will not matter because I'm here to pick up the points yet again. And I think the, the biggest... If Mark returns to the mark that we know, the biggest intimidation factor will be when you're you're a Fabio or a Pecco and you're having an off weekend and you're down an eighth and you look up at the screen and there's Mark in the top three again. And that's... Because that's, that's what 2019, 2018, 20, 2017 were. So that's, that's how he did it, I think. I'm going to half agree and half disagree with you because for me... I suddenly started taking Dobby much more seriously as a MotoGP rider when he got those last lap defeats of Mark in. And like my whole remaining slight um, slight loyalty to Rins being any good probably rests on Silverstone 2019 because he did Marquez in the last lap, in the last lap duel. But I also take the point that, you know, but after after that one championship defeat he had in on all that run of, of victories, Mark did change his style a little bit. He was that bit more. He managed to be simultaneously big picture and the dogfighter at the same time. And that is one of the reasons why I've said on a number of features and stuff now, I really think Marquez was the best motorsport performer outright in the 2010s, ahead of what anybody in F1 was doing. Um, he was That way he could just be points gathering machine and wheel to wheel animal all at once and, and still do it with not the best bike most of the time. Yeah, he, he learned so much from that, from that one defeat. Val, are you now going to re-disagree with me? Or? Well, it's just, you know, it's a difference of, of philosophy of how you view these things, really. I'm, I'm a bit of a data guy at heart, I guess, so I always feel that individual moments in, in, in any championship, really, are overvalued in, in terms of their importance. And for me, I also agree that Marquez was the best at that time, but for me, that impression came into watching the the timing screens week in week out and seeing that he was never slower than I expected him to be always as fast as the champion needed to be in that scenario or sometimes a lot faster than that just to drive the point home uh if there was ever a guy who could afford to lose a few of those duels it was Mark and that's not to to disparage Dovi or Rins or anything those are beautiful wins and they're they're marvelous to rewatch those moments but it's you know in the in the grander picture that is all he afforded them those small wins and ultimately i don't know they don't mean that much to me because the overall picture was always more or less the same there's always been maybe if there's an aura about mark marquez um it's maybe that there's always something in reserve because of that um, I've said before in the podcast that my favourite Valentino Rossi moment was that that Phillip Island 2003 win where he passed under a yellow flag, got a 10-cycle penalty and just went 10 seconds faster to win the race. And Mark has always had a little bit of that as well. Like, we've seen that 
uh, at Phillip Island. Do you remember the, was it 16 that we had the amazing eight-way race at Phillip Island? And then with two laps to go, Mark just distanced them all by half a lap and, and won the race with ease. Um, so he's always had a little bit more to give and, and maybe what the injury, what the past year and a half has done has eaten into his resources a little bit. Maybe it means that, that he doesn't quite have that last little bit to give um, that, that he keeps tucked away for, for when he needs it. And that would that would be reflected in what we saw at Aragon, I guess, because he didn't have that extra bit to give against Bagnaya there. So, um, so maybe... Like you said, Val, maybe we're going to see Mark Marquez return at 70% and that's still good enough to win the championship, but it's going to bring about needing to win the championship in a very different way. It's almost needing him, you know, we're we're going to see Mark Marquez win championships now the way Valentino Rossi won championships against Jorge Lorenzo, not the way he won championships against Sede Gibernau. I think that Phillip Island race you, you've described... I had the memory of like an exact same race, also like an all-time classic, also I think 2016, but I'm not entirely sure. It was like the best Assen race I've ever seen. And Marquez also won that by checking yeah, out yeah, the yeah. final two laps after yeah. an amazing strap. Yeah. Uh, I think you're onto something there, yes, because uh, also just looking at last season, I think we've noticed Mark dance a lot closer to the edge for, for much of it, which was reflected in those in those race crashes that normally don't happen. Marquez is the master of not crashing in races at his best. And last year, he sure did a lot of crashing in races, which suggests that he is having to, let's use the word dance again, having to dance closer to the limit than he normally likes to. I'm going to correct you slightly, Val. That 2016 Aston one was, that was the crazy Jack Miller victory. Yeah. It was Aston one of the... 2016. Yeah, there was an all-timer Aston race that was... It must Amazing. Have been 17 then. And Marquez won it, which it doesn't set it apart yeah. from a lot of other MotoGP races, I appreciate. <laughs> so we've we've talked a lot about the the expectation, the pressure on Marquez and his recovery. We haven't talked a lot about what he's gonna be sat on yet. And you know, the, the problem a seat? Oh, you'd hope so. The problem last year wasn't just um with Marquez's fitness and, and that kind of thing. So Honda has not been the best bike in MotoGP for some time, and it took another step away from that during his absence, and that wasn't something he could correct by himself. So um, you, we said at the start how the rest of the Honda team was it was expected to be centre of attention at, at the Friday morning announcement, and then along came Marquez. How it, uh, this feels like a Val territory question. How is Polis Fargo coming across? How is he feeling going into this season? Looks pretty, looks pretty, pretty happy. Looks pretty optimistic, with the caveat that he also looked pretty optimistic at the start of last year, and I was very much optimistic with him, and it just never really quite came together, apart from a few occasions when it was cold. Uh, he, he also then became insanely optimistic around Qatar time on very little evidence. Well, no, no, but the, the, his crew chief also said that they, you know, if you're a Russell Honda rider, you should be fighting for the title, and I think that's probably a bit 1990-whatever-ish. I don't think that's really... That's really a modern look at it. But I'm also not saying that Paul Espargo isn't uh, capable of fighting for the title, which I think he is, but just on the on the rightest of bikes, which last year's Honda definitely was not. Will this year's Honda be the rightest of bikes for, for Paul? Well, un- unfortunately, Mark's back, so that's a problem. But he does sound a lot happier with it, as do the others, as do the LCR Honda boys. Uh, and he also says he... 
adjusted his preparation for the season, knowing what he knows from the first Honda year, which I took to mean reading between the lines. I think he's just done a lot more dirt biking, I believe. I think he's pinpointed that as part of the secret of why Mark has been able to to fare well in the low grip conditions is his comfort with that with that sort of condition that it comes from his dirt track experience as much as also obviously natural talent. Uh, we'll see how that works out and we'll see how much of that he's actually been doing. That's probably a question worth putting to him at some point. But yeah, it looked happy and I think it'll be a much, much better season, whether it's enough to to secure him more years at Repsol Honda. It's a different question. I... So Paul said coming into last season, uh, coming into this season, into the winter, that uh, his goal for the break was to do lots and lots of flat track, lots and lots of motocross, to get used to having the rear end of the bike skipping around, um, because that's where he was struggling. He also asked Honda uh, to concentrate on, on building a bike with better rear grip, and it seems like they have done that as much as is feasible. So, so maybe what we're going to see is kind of two paths meeting in the middle, um, where he's got better at riding the bike like that and the bike has got better at suiting what he needs. Um, you can see from social media that he's done a huge amount of, of various forms of dirt bike riding over the winter. Um, not so much from his social media because he's quite a private person, but definitely from Alicia's social media because Alicia loves a brotherly selfie. Um, so, you know, they've, they've been flat out at that. Um, there's a big training facility just outside Barcelona, uh, like right next door to their their home their childhood home, a place called Rocco's Ranch, um, who even have their own kind of version of the 100-kilometer race of champions that Valentino has at the ranch. They do that, uh, I think it's on Boxing Day, and Paul and Alish both raced in it this year. Um, so there's there's been a lot of a lot of training and a lot of riding done. Um, and yeah, the, the, you know, all the noises about the bike sound pretty confident as well. Um, there, there's no doubt that Honda have given more than lip service to their promise to build a bike that isn't just designed for Mark Marquez. It seems like they actually have taken feedback from, from the others on board, which is a sensible strategy because every time we've seen them do that in the past, it has made the bike easier for Mark. It's just that because Mark is often given a bike that he can ride, once he gets comfortable on it, he doesn't want change. Why, why would you want change if it's good enough for you? ignoring the fact that you've got more natural talent than everyone else um so it, it yeah it's definitely it's the most promising preseason i've heard from honda in quite some time it's more promising than maybe not more promising than paul sounded last year because like you say val he made some pretty bold claims about fighting for championships that never went anywhere um but it's definitely you know more more confidence inspiring than the alex marquez year more confidence-inspiring than the Jorge Lorenzo year, more confidence-inspiring than the last Danny Pedrosa year. It's it's not a bad time to be uh, a Honda rider who's not Mark Marquez. But I, I don't know if it's enough for him to retain a seat beyond 2022 because, you know, like, like all the things we touched upon in the last pod, um, I think the, the, inj- the, the latest injury to Mark has got to just been another warning message to Honda that we we can't put all our eggs in one basket. That's why they're developing the bike in a different direction, but I still don't know if it's good enough. I, I can't I can't 
see the world in which Paul Espagaro, a guy who has never won a MotoGP race in 10 years of trying, is a MotoGP championship contender? Yeah, I I can, but it probably involves him staying at KTM <clears throat> and finding something <laughs> super, super extra for, for one or two seasons. Yeah. For the benefit of listeners, uh, Val's face went into an expression that looked like he imagined a land where Paul Espargaro was the 2024 world champion, and he imagined it really vividly as well. <laughs> you know what? I, honestly, that is a world I, I'd quite like to live in, because that, that sounds fun. That just sounds really fun. But <laughs> anyway, I agree with, with everything that was just said in terms of the, the Honda positivity, but there was also there was a moment where the, the, the X factor came up, and that X factor is called the eight Ducatis in which I realized, Ooh, this might actually be, this might actually be a harder season for the other Hondas because there are now, so there are now five factory spec Ducatis on, on the grid plus one. That's going to be not that far off in an air. Obviously, even if we don't talk about how well the two rookies are going to, or aren't going to adapt that are, that's six bikes that are going to make a huge push for, Automatic Q2 spots, I'm guessing, basically every weekend because that Ducati is a really good qualifying machine. So there might be a situation where the Honda guys with their better bike are still being getting stuck in Q1 a bunch, and it's never easy to recover from that, as we've seen last year. There were, I think, a fair few races where Paul looked really quite good in FP4 and then couldn't quite make it work in qualifying and then progress in the races which is not happening uh i think you need to be quite comfortable with that honda to be able to to overtake a lot of riders and i think only marks at that level but if it's you know if it's a different enough honda we'll we'll see i guess so i mean traditionally a repsol honda seat is always something you want as a motor gp rider for for, de- for for decades that's been the case but i've i really do wonder if that's the case to the same extent anymore i mean they need to they need to future proof themselves for for Marquez as you say being quite an old rider now and having had these injury worries and Paul didn't show enough last year to to earn a long term future so he he's got a big year as well so Honda does need to be looking around the grid going who else can we can we slot in for at least one of these riders long term both of them what what does Honda need to show in the first few races of this season to make it look like an attractive destination on anything other than past reputation Simon. Well, one one problem that Honda does have, unlike pretty much every other team in the grid right now, is they don't have anyone waiting in the wings. If they want a name, they're going to have to take that name from another manufacturer because th- there's no way that putting Alex Marquez or Takan Akagami into that seat is going to improve things dramatically um, based on what you know the chances they've been given in the form we've seen from them. Um, I think what, what Honda... Uh, ironically, I think what Honda need from the first few races of the year is for Paul to be fast. But then that does create something of a catch 22 of if Paul is fast enough, should we not just try yeah. and keep him? Um, that's the, the difficult position yeah. they're going to find themselves in. So, so in theory, I guess what they need to, to see or what everyone else needs to see is a Paul Espargaro that's fast enough to prove that they've built the bike for him, but not so fast as Honda have to be obliged to keep him. That's exactly my thinking, 100%. I'm glad I'm not the one having to make the decision. Well, we, we did make the decision last week on last week's podcast, didn't we? And we went, uh, we, we put Mir on that bike, so 
That's true. That's true. I'm taking that as art. It's also a question of of how much pull Mark still retains and how much faith injuries aside are there at Honda that he can return close to his ultimate potential. Because if you were of the impression that I was a freak thing, that's not going to affect him anymore, both the, the vision thing, but more importantly, obviously the shoulder and the arm. If you're under the impression that you just got unlucky and he's going to get back on trucking the same way that he was in the years prior to that, then if that's your philosophy, you might as well just, just do what Mark prefers. And if Mark prefers to keep a, steam, a teammate who's quick enough, but not quick enough to like quick enough to be his teammate, but not quick enough to stop him from winning the title, well, Paul might very well be that. Or if Mark wants to see his brother next to him actually race next to him for more than a few laps of one race, that's also an option. Either you Either you diversify or you just go full out and put all of your eggs in one basket and then I guess he gets injured again and you pull out of MotoGP. I don't know. Sounds terrible. But Or he doesn't get injured and he wins 10 more titles for you. There's there's two things to sort of remember. One is that Mark has a contract until the end of 2024. We don't know what that contract says about teammates. But also there is a persistent rumor that when Honda signed Jorge Lorenzo their first choice was one mayor and Mark Marquez next it. So if that's the case, then it means probably in Mark's contract, there is some sort of a clause that lets him select his teammate. So Honda themselves might be caught in a pretty bizarre situation where even if they don't feel comfortable enough betting solely on a still recovering Mark Marquez for the future, there's nothing really they can do about it as long as Mark Marquez is betting on Mark Marquez because he can continue to veto whoever they want to put alongside him if there's a risk that they're going to be stronger, faster, more competitive. See, what that what that theory of the contract clause implies is that Marquez was amenable to allowing his brother to be demoted to LCR before a single race happened, which he may well have been, because from what he said, it sounded like he felt it made sense for Alex, but if he has a like an actual veto clause, then it might make for an awkward family dinner if you don't exercise that, you know? Uh, that said, there's also the factor that Mark earns a lot at Honda, and if they want their ideal teammate for him, so let's say not Paul, not Alex, not Taka, but Mir, that's also going to be a, a, a big outlay. Also because you have to have the sweetener of big spending because not everybody's convinced by this Honda. It's not a Ducati. Ducati, I think, can get riders for basically nothing because their bike is is proven with people who are not a terrifying alien god. So, you know, there you go. Uh, it's It's complicated in terms of budget. It's complicated in terms of appeasing your, your star rider. But it's, you know, it's also fun. Hey, obviously, no top MotoGP rider is going to say, I'm not going to Honda because I think Marquez is quicker than me. They'll all believe they could take him on in, in performance terms, rightly or wrongly. But I can see I can see a few people probably quite intelligently looking at that situation going, would I actually get listened to in that environment given this team's got this reputation for building the bike for one person for so long? Well, you also said nobody's going to say it in that nobody's going to say it out loud. <laughs> I think a few might think it. They they should. It's not an They probably should. Have, yeah. <laughs> So for a lot of years, for well, for all of Marquez's MotoGP career, really, he's been uh, he's been discussed in terms of Valentino Rossi. 
not so much because they'd necessarily be fighting on track, but because one big incident between them really made them synonymous with each other. And uh, I, I did think, you know, this is my last podcast standing in for Toby, so I could just chuck another Sepang 2015 chat because um, nothing to lose, really. But we're not going to do that, even though I've got quite a strong opinion on whose fault that entirely was. And yeah. Anyway, we're not going to do that today. We're gonna, <laughs> our Valentino Rossi chat is going to refer to what he's doing in 2022, which is going to be GT racing in GT World Challenge Europe, which I still think of as just calling Not Blanc Pan, um, as that was where it was for, for many years, in an Audi rather than, well, initially it looked like he might be in a Ferrari. Um, he's still part of the VW Audi group um, via his Ducati team deal in MotoGP. So, Val, what is what have, what is new about Rossi's plans that's come out in the last week, and uh, what are you expecting from his switch to car racing? Well, what I'm expecting is that he'll fare quite well with the stewards because it's it's just really hard to kick another car when you're in Audi <laughs> GT car. <laughs> Not sure if we need to delete that whole bit, but I I couldn't resist. But my apologies. <laughs> Anyway, uh, yeah, so he's not doing it with a, with a Ferrari like many, including us, I think originally last year, will have, we'll have expected because most of Rossi's GT forays, I think maybe all of them, have been with a, with a Ferrari GT usually run by, by Kessel. And Kessel indeed did run the Golf car that he was supposed to campaign in the, in the Golf 12 Hours in, in Abu Dhabi and at the... At the beginning of this year i think not at the end of last year yeah at the beginning of this year and obviously then he had a close covid contact or something like that so luca marini went with rossi's friend uccio and they got an xgp3 podium finisher with them and they finished on the podium again so well done luca etc but yeah uh, it's interesting to see rossi link up with not Ferrari and not AF Corsa, the, the Ferrari team that's really good in GTs, but a team that's also really good in GTs, WRT, which is intrinsically linked to, to Audi, the Vincent Voss uh, WRT team, which absolutely tends to dominate the championship that Rossi has gone into. So that championship is now GT World Challenge Europe. Many will probably know it as Blank Pan from back in the day. Some might even know it as FIA GT something or other. I'm not entirely sure because it's been a while and I was like a little baby by the time that was all <laughs> happening. Yeah, but uh, it's a very, very, just a very good team and clearly a very good proven car. And he's probably going to get some real proper Ace Factory teammates in support. We're not entirely sure if he's doing Pro or Pro AM yet, but I'm I'm suspecting Pro, to be honest. Just, just going by how big a deal has been made of it and how serious... Rossi's intentions are I don't think he'd just settle for a pro-am entry but we'll see and either way it suggests maybe a closer link between Rossi and the Volkswagen group going forward so Rossi obviously already has a team on the MotoGP grid that is uh, that is running Ducati bikes Ducati being a part of Volkswagen group I guess we'll see if Rossi ends up wildcarding in the in the DTM this year with a WRT Audi and if he's got one or two eyes down the road at the Audi Le Mans project. Although the competition for those seats is obviously going to be mental. I have to admit that I didn't really look much at his options um, prior to leaving MotoGP in terms of what series he'd slot into. And then the, the news come out about the WRT ride, drive and I looked at their calendar and I was like, 
oh yeah, of course he's going to do this because he gets to race at Spa and he gets to race at Brands Hatch. It, it just sounds perfect for him. It's a proper <laughs> old school circuit calendar that I think you know, it just proves how. Yeah, he he. I think you're right. He will go for the GT, not the the GT, not the the pro am class, but he's there to have fun. Like he's he's going out to have a good year, and for sure there will be wins to come, and there will be successes because he is by all counts very very handy on four wheels. But um, I think he's going to have a bomb, and and it probably actually helps rather than hinders that like nine out of the ten rounds clash with MotoGP. Because it means there's no expectation for him to be in the MotoGP paddock as, as you know, someone in the background of the garage taking up camera space that could be focused on his riders. I think that there was always going to be a, a some sort of a clean break in year one where he'd want to distance himself a little bit from MotoGP. And finding a calendar that keeps him away seems like a pretty solid way of doing it. Simon, you, you chatted with Luca Marini at the end of last year about doing these GT race with races with Rossi, and it can with, with things like um, balance of performance, it can be hard to get a read on what's actually quick in, in GTs, and there's there's lots of events of varying levels of seriousness, amateur driver lineups, and that kind of thing. And I've never really had a read on when when Rossi pops out in a GT car if it really is just for a laugh or if it's something where he absolutely wants to be winning as well, but. I got the impression after your chat with Marini that Marini gave some quite good insight into just how seriously Rossi takes these what have been fun outings, but is now his, his full-time racing gig. I'm, I'm pretty sure that if it's lining up on the front row of a MotoGP grid or if it's nipping to the shops on a scooter, Valentino Rossi is out to win it. Um, I think that that's <laughs> his, his entire mentality is win or bust. I think that's the way he approaches life. Um, as a lot of racers do, that's that's a pretty universal trait, um, and I think that that's that, you know, that's going to shine through into whatever he does this year. Uh, we're going to see him. We're we're not going to see him not take it seriously. By all accounts, from speaking to a few of the VR forty six guys, he is already like borderline obsessive when it comes to sim racing. Um, even though you don't see him, um, I've heard a few stories about like people racing in Gran Turismo and suddenly recognizing the voice of the guy they're racing against. And it's him at like 4am in the morning, Italy time, because he's still up in his basement where the simulators are. You know, he, he has put a lot of time and effort into being fast in a car. Uh, I've been to Monza rally. I've seen him race at Monza. He has beaten names like Lewis Hamilton at Monza. Uh, so there's not, there's no hanging around there either. Um, I, I think he wouldn't be doing it if he didn't if he wasn't doing it seriously enough to be competitive. And I, I saw the question of, of age come up obviously at at how, how seriously and for how long can he actually do it, given that effectively he's leaving MotoGP because because of time. He would have gone on forever if if age allowed him, but by all accounts, you know, he's gotten older and not as sharp. And that's as simple as that. So how long can he continue in in something like GT World Challenge. And I've just looked it up, and on the, on last year's GT World Challenge, I think this was Endurance Grid, there were three drivers above 60. So I think I think he should be fine. <laughs> so what I'm trying to say. I watched the 2020 British Touring Car highlights the other night, and it's basically the same people that were racing in British Touring Cars the last time I watched the highlights in 2010. <laughs> 
So I'm not saying that it's it's I'm not saying that car racing is less physically demanding, but there is obviously more margin when it comes to age. Yeah, and I think in certain categories, especially and without any disrespect to the GT racing specialists who cover quite a, a wide spectrum of ages, there's some there's some extremely quick young guys in GTs, and there's some people who, like you guys say, you've probably seen them in single seats in the '90s, and they're still absolute GT aces now. They're like Val, you raised the question of. Rossi's longer term term ambitions and whether he might be trying to get himself into an Audi hypercar further down the line. Now that is something where I can't say, even with his profile, I can't see Audi being hugely enthusiastic about a relative beginner coming in at the age of mid forties, representing it, you know, when it's trying to win them on outright. Nah, probably not. I just I vaguely remember him sounding interested about hypercars. Certainly, I think he'll get to take one for a spin if he wants to. But yeah, he'd have to show some insane GT prowess to to warrant a spot. And obviously the fact that Audi at any given time has 7,000 factory drivers under contract, that it's struggling to fit into all the motorsport programs that it hasn't cut yet. Yeah, it's going to be, it's, it's gonna be a, a tall order, probably more in the realm of fantasy. But like, we'll see. What if he's what if he's GT World Challenge champion in all three categories at the end of this year? That's only you're talking. What if he rocks up to the DTM for one weekend and I don't know. I don't know what would be realistic there. I wanted to say win, but that's probably probably a tough one. But what if he what if he rocks up and he's like on the level with actual factory drivers again? Then then you're talking. And given how successful and how dedicated this guy has been to to motor racing. And, you know, given how, how smart he is and how GT car will not be relying so much on the on the twitch reflexes that you probably need on a MotoGP bike that maybe is the part that was letting him down w- with age. Who knows? You know, there's, st- there's still, you know, people still talk. What would have happened if Valentino Rossi drove in F1 for Ferrari or Sauber or whatever? There's still a lot of people wondering. And there's still, you know, the the talk about that test where... It said he was like half a second off Schumacher or something. I, I don't know the figures. I have not seen lap time charts. I don't know how true or false that is. But, you know, serious, reasonable people have said that. And that's that suggests a certain natural affinity for, for four wheels also. The, the one thing about him going, if he ends up in a, a Le Mans hypercar, if there's a possibility of that happening, there is no way on earth he'll want it to happen because of who he is. He will want it to happen in merit. Um, and I think that that's actually a good thing for him because it kind of means there is no pressure per se. If, if he's there, it's because he's earned it and it'll all be good because he's fast in the car. And if he's not quite good enough, then he's not really said he wants to do it that badly anyway. He wants to race Le Mans, but they'll always find a seat for him at Le Mans somewhere. Um, even if it's not necessarily in an Audi, because I wouldn't be surprised if we do see him sort of pick and choose here and there between different car manufacturers instead of getting tied into a contract. You know, I'd, I'd be surprised if we go to Monza Rally and he's not back in a pro drive focus or a Fiesta, sorry. You know, there'll be, there'll be a bit of chopping and changing around. So if he wants to go to Le Mans, he'll find a way. If he wants to drive a Le Mans hypercar for Audi, then he'll do what he can to earn it. And if he doesn't get it, say to be. One thing that is for sure as well, within, within seconds of that deal being announced, I saw Brands Hatch tweeting about the chance to see Rossi uh, racing in GT World Challenge Europe. I, I think, does the uh, does the calendar actually kick off at Imola on the endurance side? So he's got a home race to start with, I think I spotted as well. For, for the circuits hosting 
hosting these races and for the championship and for Audi, whatever Rossi does, this is just massive, isn't it? Oh, Christmas has come again for, for all of those venues. It's, it's incredible. The only one that I feel a little bit sorry for is the French round of the championship because it's at Magnicor the same weekend as MotoGP's at Le Mans. Oh, that's harsh. seems dumb. <laughs> yeah, plus Magnicor being rubbish as well. Y- yeah, uh, that too. <laughs> although maybe it, it felt rubbish in the 90s. It might, it might not be, but by comparison now... It no, might I've be been a, there a bit more recently for 24-hour bike races uh, and it's rubbish, yeah. don't worry. <laughs> it, it felt rubbish on F195 on the PlayStation, so... Yeah, based on that. I do not remember F one ninety five on PlayStation. It feels like we're moving backwards at this point. Yeah, I should uh, hands up and I should probably stop. So I, I'm going to stop. In fact, I'm going to quit this podcast because uh, by the time the next one's going to be recorded, Toby should have navigated his way back from a bivouac via waypoints and other Dakar terminology that um, Petrucci knows very well. Thank you very much um, for having me for the last couple of weeks. Uh, oh, Val's raised his hand. You've really just made it sound like those final comments of mine have bullied you of, of this podcast, <laughs> in, which, in which case, uh, good. <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding, please. No, some hate mail. I'm lonely. Send me, send me. Okay, let's just cut all of this. I'm just, I'm just angling for a kind of standard role. I get, I basically, I get invited on to bring back V10s, our retro F1 podcast, when the famous guest falls through. It's like, that's nearby. So I'm, I'm angling for that sort of role. If, if anyone like injures themselves, opening a window in a way that damages their voice or whatever, I, I can pop back on. So, so what you're saying is the next podcast is going to be uh, Matt Beer Review's his 2021 or 2022 Dakar campaign. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever Danilo potentially inevitably gets stuck in customs or something. Start working on your Italian accent, man. Uh, I've, I've got sideburns. You know, that's, that's half the qualification for being Petrucci. Right. Okay. I'm going to go now. So thank you very much for your, for listening to this podcast. There'll be one every week, MotoGP wise in the build up to the season and through the year as well. Um, obviously go to the race.com. Don't forget the hyphen between the and the race for all of the remaining MotoGP launches and free season build up and more of the massive list of written features I've commissioned these two with over the last couple of days. Our sister podcasts, F1, Bring Back V10s, uh, well and truly up and running as well. Formula E will have some podcasts before that season starts in a minute. So plenty of you to read, watch and listen to from the race over the coming weeks and the rest of the season. Thanks for your time. Bye.